Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Tuesday, January 24th, 2022, just after 4.30 Eastern Time. I'm doing the show at a bit of an odd hour today. I don't even know, there's not even a good reason. I started down the road of telling you why it was at an odd hour before I realized that I think my producer just asked me what time we were going live, and I blurted out 4.30. It's uh, probably just about 10.30 p.m. or so on my internal clock. I just got back on the weekend from Switzerland. I wasn't on a skiing trip in the Swiss Alps, although I was in the Swiss Alps for the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos. The 2023 annual meeting where thousands of the world's elites, business leaders, media leaders, academics, intellectuals, the intelligentsia, and of course, big buck CEOs all just hobnobbing with each other over uh, some various varieties of juice. I can't remember if I shared the picture in a previous show, but when I went inside the Congress Center in Davos, there's this little coffee refreshment area in the foyer just outside of the room where all the sessions take place. And they had coffee and tea, of course, and they also had a sign advertising the health bar. And you walked up to it and there were these very bright colored, vibrant juices. And you say, oh, well, that looks good. And one of them was turnip cabbage. Another was pumpkin, spelt uh, the uh, less known P-U-M-K-I-N. They're Swiss. I won't uh, hold the uh, lack of uh, spelling the word pumpkin against them too, too much. And then beetroot juice. And I was just about to have myself a uh, beetroot juice when the president of Serbia walked by. And I figured, okay, the beetroot juice can wait. I got to talk to the president of Serbia first. Uh, President Vucic. Vucic, I apologize. My Serbian is somewhat lacking. Thankfully, his English was better than my Serbian. So our our very brief interview was able to proceed in English. We're going to talk about the president of Serbia, the Prime Minister of Kurdistan. We'll talk about the President of the Bank of Montreal, the Commander of Rebel News, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, and lots of other folks that I encountered in Davos in the next little while. But I wanted to do a bit of a post-mortem, if you will. I I did a couple of these live shows last week in Davos. We uh, spoke from our Airbnb about all sorts of things that were happening. Now that it's in the rearview mirror, I want to talk about it from a bit of a bigger picture perspective and why, as the title of the show indicates, I think Canadians need to realize that the World Economic Forum agenda is alive and well in Canada. Now, let me just first off set the stage here by talking about what it is that the WEF agenda actually is. And I wasn't going to use the clip in the show today, although if uh, my very patient and adaptive producer, Sean, can get it for us, I will share it. Because it was actually on the first day that I ran into Klaus Schwab, and he was talking to a reporter after a press conference. I I walked up to him, and he was explaining how he basically doesn't have an agenda of his own. He was basically trying to make the claim that uh, he is just a mere facilitator. He just has a table and all of these world leaders and business CEOs sit at the table and he's not the guy that tells anyone what to do. And, And this was something that I thought deserved to be pushed back against. I think it was something that required a little bit of pushback because the WEF gets to kind of hide behind this idea of we're just a platform. We're just a facilitator more often than I think it should be allowed to. 
And a big part of this is because the media generally does not hold them account. And this was a prevailing theme of my time in Davos. You've got no shortage of journalists there. You've got journalists from Latin America. You've got journalists from all over Europe. You've got Asian journalists. You've certainly got a lot of American journalists, but none of them are actually there to ask any real questions, either of the World Economic Forum or of the participants in Davos. So when I heard Klaus Schwab saying this, I didn't really buy it. I'm very often expressing myself, except now I have to explain why we have chosen this scene. But you never have heard from me political statements or economic statements, um, which are, let's say, in any way um, uh, influencing uh, political personalities. Hmm. Doesn't make any statements which are influencing political figures and politicians. Well, uh, that's a very, very odd thing to say. So when Klaus Schwab makes comments about uh, penetrating the cabinets, and when he makes comments about all the young global leaders, and when he makes comments about how the future does not just happen, we build the future, the people in this room, uh, he's not influencing anyone. He's, he's just, uh, he's the empresario of the globalists. That's Klaus Schwab's whole MO. He's the globalist empresario. He's just basically the ringleader, and all of the animals are going to do what they're going to do in the circus without him telling them. And why this is so unconvincing is because when you go to the World Economic Forum event, as I did, I've done twice, one with accreditation, you get all of these press releases that come out, there's all of these initiatives that are being announced, there's this task force, there's this thing, and you can't buy into the fact that this is a neutral organization without an agenda that also manages to be launching these commissions. I mean, for example, uh, Mary Ng, and we reported about this on uh, TNC.news over at True North, Mary Ng was having an informal ministerial meeting at the World Economic Forum, and somehow comes out at this event that was not a multilateral summit by any stretch, it wasn't a climate conference, but she comes out as part of a coalition of trade ministers on climate, which was launched in Davos, presided over by the World Economic Forum, and this strikes me as the kind of thing that only happens when there's an organization that has a very specific agenda that it's putting forward. And you can look at the guest list and see, well, there are lots of CEOs of oil companies there, tech resources in Canada. You may recall the uh, Tech Frontier Pipeline project that used to be all the rage before they had to pull the plug. Uh, the tech executives were there. And that strikes me as a bit odd, right? It should strike you as a bit odd. But they do this because they have to have this cursory participation from the oil and gas sector so that when people like me get up there and say, well, you have an aggressively anti-oil agenda... They can say, well, no, we had uh, tech resources there. Yeah, we had the president of SEPSA, the uh, Spanish company. <laughs> I talked about this one last week on the show. This is the uh, Spanish oil and gas company whose CEO got up there and talked about how we need to accelerate the transition away from oil and gas and use green technologies. Now, oddly, after that discussion... I woke up one morning, I think it was like uh, Saturday morning or something, I was back in Canada, I woke up and saw that that company had followed me on Twitter, this company that I've never mentioned on Twitter, that I've never followed, that I've never had any dealing with whatsoever, after I do a discussion about them on my show, somehow are following me on Twitter, so we'll call that the World Economic Forum effect for you. But the reason this is so relevant is because there was an aggressively anti-oil and gas agenda taking place in Davos. 
Davos. And even the oil companies and mining companies who had representatives there were companies that are making a lot of money by participating in this transition themselves. They're not representative of groups in Canada, for example, that are still very reliant on clean and efficient and environmentally sound extraction of natural resources. And I, the one thing I do say, though, and I think it's important for people to realize, is that not every single participant of the WEF meeting is part of this monolithic group. I, I think there's this tendency to assume that every, everyone there thinks the same way, when in, in actual fact, there are people that represent a range of ideas. Certainly, I think a certain type of people tend to be the ones invited. And they all tend to be consumed by what's happening there and talk about things the, the same way. But there were some individual people that did a very good job at pushing back against this prevailing narrative, one of whom we mentioned on the show previously and shared a, a bit of my interview with. That was Niall Ferguson, the eminent historian and author. Another was the foreign minister of Hungary who talked about all of the green energy woes. Another was Senator Joe Manchin, who, again, is a Democrat from West Virginia, but on energy issues, he's a lot more aligned with, I think, where ordinary people are and where Republicans and conservatives are. And he actually toured the oil Sands in Alberta a few months back when Jason Kenney was the premier. So it was a bit of a refreshing turn to have this chat with Joe Manchin on the sidelines of the WEF annual meeting. First off, what do you think of the Biden administration's decision to be so averse to importing Canadian oil? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. You know, Canada's been our best trading partner, it's been our best ally, and it's our friend and our neighbor. And next of all, 62% of our heavy crude comes from Alberta. So I'm totally committed to it, and they're totally wrong in not accepting it. And we're willing to go to different places and lift the sanctions off of Iran, who wants the most prolific terrorist supporters, and give them money. Or going towards areas that basically do not have the climate standards that, that Alberta has, and the way they've done it, and done it so well, and made so many different advancements. So I'm totally supportive of Alberta oil coming more and more to the U.S., and it was a shame that we didn't ask them to support more. Uh, right now, right now with the Russia-Ukraine war, we're obviously seeing a lot of discussion about energy independence and energy security. Do you think this could cause some of those more resistance, uh, more resistant to Western oil in, in the United States to reevaluate? Well, the bottom line is that the IRA bill, which is everybody's talking about here, it's a tremendous opportunity for the United States to be totally energy independent. We can't do that unless we're basically developing an all-in energy policy using all of the resources that we have, which is oil, gas, coal, and developing all the new technology for the future. And that's what we're working on. That's what that bill is about. It's about energy security and basically producing cleaner than any other hydrocarbons in the world. So with that, basically, we're going to have to have Alberta oil. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That was Senator Joe Manchin, and what was interesting, he he did a panel on the U.S., I think it was called America Unbound or something, and I just caught him on the way into that, and then he said, I forget what it is now, but he said something that uh, was, I think, very problematic to a lot of people, uh, something along the lines of internet free speech, and I can't remember the exact wording, but he made a comment about how uh, he felt that social media discourse was a problem, and then he ended up walking that back, so it was unfortunate because I like had this great 
interview with Joe Manchin that I was putting out. And then he had also stepped in at Royally like 20 minutes later and was getting hit by the same people that I was trying to get to watch this interview. So uh, again, I remind people, yes, he's a Democrat. I don't endorse him. I'm just saying that on energy, he seems to know what's what and has a solid head on his shoulders. I, I hold, I reserve uh, judgment on, on other issues and deal with that as it comes up. But I think it was important, and I let me just say on an aside here, that when politicians go to Davos, now this is like the death knell for credibility in certain circles. I, I know this is like the big litmus test now for a lot of people. And again, going to Davos often means a certain thing, like Christian Freeland goes there, and there's been no record put out of what meeting she had. There's been no list of announcements. There was no proclamation. Who did she meet with? Did she have bilateral meetings, multilateral meetings? Is she also joining Canada up in some task force like Mary Ng? Who knows? And I think this is the important distinction here is that going to Davos itself is not inherently wrong. If you're going for the right reasons, you're saying the right things on stage publicly and they align with what you're saying privately. And I would argue if there's transparency, if you're prepared to own up to what it is you're doing there and what it is you're hoping to achieve. Like Maxime Bernier has been to Davos, Stephen Harper has been to Davos, and both of those people I think would articulate, and Maxime has done a video on this or an interview on this in the past, what it is they were doing there and, and why they were there. But the organization has changed a fair bit in the last 10 years, certainly in the last five years. And from my perspective, I'd say the COVID era was the real point at which it became too important to look away because that was when they started talking about these really grandiose plans in a way that started permeating through a lot of places that hadn't really paid all that much attention to it. And we started to see things like the Great Reset, Build Back Better, and uh, what are some of the other buzzwords that they use, stakeholder capitalism. And all of this is part and parcel of a bigger plan here that is incredibly relevant, not just to Canadians, but to other people as well. And it's challenging when you talk about this group that goes there that is so unused to scrutiny, so unused to being asked questions, and normally in other places are not taking questions. And uh, this is why I talk about this, and I know I shared it in the previous episode of this show, but I think it bears repeating because it's very short and it's very telling. Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, a member of the WEF Board of Trustees. We wouldn't accept her being on a corporate board. We wouldn't accept her being a lobbyist. Why should she have this role with the WEF? And how does it not put her in a conflict of interest with her role as a Canadian cabinet minister? This is a very legitimate question. And if she had thought about it for more than five seconds, you'd think she probably could have come up with an answer to it. But this is what happens when Deputy, Minister, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland is asked the question. Hi, Minister Andrew Lawton, True North. I was just wondering if it's a conflict of interest for you to be a trustee while also a cabinet minister. Are you proud of the work? And if so, why is there an issue answering a question about it? Enjoy your panel, Minister. After that, I had some people asking me, why were you so nice to her? Why did you tell her to have a nice panel? I said, well, because I'm not trying to be unreasonable here. I don't want anyone to be able to look at my interactions with these people and say that I went in hot and I was aggressive and that's why they didn't want to talk to me. But it was polite, I was firm, and she could have taken the 15 seconds to stop and say, there's no issue and here's why. 
the woman who once co-hosted a global conference for media freedom at which she wanted to pick and choose which journalists could ask her questions, doesn't like journalists asking her questions in Davos. Now, another person who normally was not taking our questions, but in Davos did stop and talk, was the president of BMO, formerly the Bank of Montreal, Daryl White, who, according to Minister Freeland, wanted the truckers classified as terrorists when it came to Canada's terrorism and anti-money laundering laws. And this was the guy who, again, according to Minister Freeland's handwritten note, said that Canada was looking like a banana republic. People didn't want to invest here. Treat them like terrorists. When this came out a few months ago through the Public Order Emergency Commission, I tried to get an answer from BMO on whether this was an accurate representation of his comments, and if so, what he was thinking when he said those. Now, on the streets of Davos, he had a bit of a different story. Take a look. Uh, Minister Freeland said during the Public Order Emergency Commission that you had wanted to call the convoy protesters terrorists to deal with their financing. Why was that? So I, I, I would never call the convoy protesters terrorists uh, what was uh, what was said was that um, in, in order for the banks to be helpful there are certain protocols and those protocols include a sanction where we can in fact help in that case uh, otherwise uh, it's not our business to to interfere in the affairs of anyone's finances, truckers or otherwise. One of the other uh, banking executives on that call had pushed back a little bit and said that they didn't want the banks to be weaponized. Is, was that a view you shared? Oh, it's always a view I shared. I don't think banks should be weaponized any more than any other industry. I think we, uh, we have jobs to do and we do it for Canadians. And I think generally, uh, in fact, more than generally, we do it pretty well. Did you support the financial measures? That last one, you got when they're walking away, you got to always sneak in a last one there. And again, I thought that was also a legitimate question. Okay, if you're just talking about supporting the government on the directions that they took, did you support those measures? And he was silent, which again, I feel is pretty much an answer. Now, interestingly enough, uh, he was on my flight on the way back to Toronto, as was, uh, who else was on my flight? Christian Freeland was on my flight. She also did not want to chat even when I wasn't recording, when I, I just uh, said hello and I said, good to see you again, Minister. And she quickly looked the other way and bolted into the business class cabin, not uh, like me, closer to the back of the plane. And uh, what else happened here? Uh, Daryl White was on, the former Premier of Newfoundland was on my flight, Brian Tobin, and the former frontman of Great Big C, Alan Doyle, was also on my flight. Now, Alan, Do I don't know if Alan Doyle was at Davos. I don't know how uh, being a Newfoundland singer gets you an invitation to Davos, or if he was just uh, passing through Zurich, but he was up there palling around, palling around with uh, former Premier Tobin, and also with Daryl White of BMO, oddly. I saw the two of them, like, hugging at Pearson Airport after, as they went their separate ways. So, uh, Davos makes for strange bedfellows, as they say. But there were some interesting people, again, that are not used to taking questions. One of them, and I hope you'll indulge me here, because this is more of a British story, but it's one that is tremendously relevant to Canada when we talk about the internet regulations that are coming in. And just by way of context here, Ofcom is Brit Britain's CRTC. So it's the regulator of television and radio stations. Ofcom has more of a content oversight role 
than the CRTC does. Ofcom says what you can and can't say at a certain time of day. Ofcom says what you're allowed to say as far as profanity is concerned. Uh, and, and if you look at the list of what words they govern, it's actually quite hilarious. And Ofcom also has been investigating various networks, notably GB News and the former program on there, The Mark Stein Show, for having discussions about vaccine harms, about vaccine injuries. And there have been a slate of investigations against this, some of which Ofcom has dismissed, others Ofcom has decided to advance, which could bring in basically sanctions leading up to the termination of a station's broadcast license. Now, all the while, Ofcom likes to say, well, we support free speech, we support vigorous debate, we're not a censor. Yet somehow the chief broadcasting oversight woman, the chief censor of the United K, uh, United Kingdom, Dame Melanie Dawes was at Davos. Now, again, I've asked Ofcom because I've done some work with GB News and with Mark Stein, and I've asked Ofcom in the past to comment on this very thing, and they've not responded. But it's a lot harder to hide on the streets of Davos. Here's Dame Melanie Dawes. I was just wondering if I could ask you about uh, whether you think Ofcom is being fair in enforcing its COVID misinformation policy against very legitimate discourse about COVID. Um, well, I'm not quite sure what you, you mean, to be honest. Well, people that have spoken about vaccine uh, injuries have received Ofcom complaints and investigations and uh, broadcast licenses are in jeopardy of people that talk about very real issues. Um, I, I, I just don't think that we've, uh, I, I'm, I guess I'm not sure it's very hard to, argue, to answer that question without a specific instance. But uh, GB News is facing investigations. Well, there are sometimes cases where we open up an investigation, but you know, let's see how that goes. Um, what we're absolutely clear about is that freedom of expression is incredibly important in our, the way we, that we deal with the broadcasting code. So people are absolutely entitled to express views. So we always abide by those principles whenever we're looking into anything. So do you believe that discussing vaccine injury should be allowed? I, certainly, absolutely. Uh, free and frank and open conversations are always good on any topic. Now, uh, Mark Stein put that clip up on his website, I think it was yesterday or two days ago. I, I would argue that uh, they could probably just drop their investigations here and now. The chief executive of Ofcom says, no, we support free speech, so that's not, uh, there's no point, and I don't know the cases you're talking about, and you put those to her, and she says, well, yes, this is an example of the free speech and vigorous debate that we allow. So uh, feel free to enter that into evidence if you're going up against Ofcom in the U.S. But uh, it's important to... I would also say here, and I know I'm making a lot of claims that are important here, but I think this whole story is one that is significant and one that flies very often under the radar of media, certainly under the radar of Canadian media. But the big question, and I had a few people point this out on Twitter and wonder why I didn't ask it, because you only get a few moments with these people, if that. What is she doing in Davos in the first place? And that is a very fair question. Why is the head of Ofcom there? Why is the head broadcast regulator of the United Kingdom cavorting with globalists? If the head of CBC were there, people in Canada would probably have some issues with it. If the head of the CRTC were there, people in Canada would have some issues with it. So these are fairly legitimate questions, and oftentimes they are just not used to having critical reporters there. So the point that I made, and, and you can read if you want to get my thoughts on this in a bit more depth. I wrote a substack about this the other day in which I talked about independent media as being the real winners of the World Economic Forum annual meeting this year. And I believe that because we were out in full force. There were independent journalists from the US, from Australia, from Japan, from Canada. And in doing so, 
we really did shape the narrative in a way. We counter-narrated in a way that a lot of these other people have never had happen before. Like Russell Brand, I was on his show once on Monday and once on Thursday last week. So twice last week. And the amount of comments I've had from people, emails, new Twitter followers, people in my own life that don't follow politics that saw me on Russell Brand's show and like reached out to me or whatever. This is significant because this is the sort of stuff that's breaking through the traditional bubbles and conventional bubbles on, on these sorts of things. So I decided to spend a little bit of time talking with my Canadian compatriot and the rebel commander Ezra Levant, who was not just in Davos himself, but led a, a team of rebels there for the second time in a row. This was our chat about uh, independent media and the broader Davos narrative. I'm here with the rebel commander himself, Ezra Levant, just outside the security gates here for the World Economic Forum annual meeting 2023 in Davos. We may have to abruptly cut short this interview. We've got our eye on all of the uh, world leaders and business leaders that are coming by. And if we see someone more interesting to talk to than each other, Ezra and I will both bolt over there. Uh, but Ezra, you've actually led a, a legion of rebels here uh, this year. I know it's the second year you've done this, the first time you've been here with them. Uh, why are you here? Well, uh, the World Economic Forum is something that if you were to get your news only from the CBC and the Globe and Mail, it would either not exist at all or be the most beneficent uh, angelic organization in the world. And if you were to criticize the World Economic Forum, you would be denounced as a conspiracy theorist. But alas, there are some conspiracies afoot. There, there are some conspiracies. Uh, many of them are out in the open. That's what's interesting about the World Economic Forum. To quote Klaus Schwab, their president for life, they seek, to, they seek to master the future. They boast about penetrating the cabinets of countries around the world. Klaus Schwab really did write a best-selling book called The Great Reset. His intellectual muse, Yuval Noah Harari, really does talk about a future where people are useless and for the mass of the public, their future is video games and drugs. These are absurd things. And Normally, if they were said by some madman, they would be dismissed, except for the madman in question, who was actually the son of a literal Nazi. Klaus Schwab's dad moved to Germany to work under the Nazis. Like, it's almost too much of a Bond villain. Like, it, it, if you were to draft a script with the World Economic Forum and a leader, Klaus Schwab, talking about penetrating the cabinets, Hollywood executives would say, oh, it's, it's not believable. That's, that's too on the nose. But this group is real. He is a Bond villain. And the thing is, he's got George Soros and his son Alex Soros. He's got Bill Gates. He's got Al Gore on the board. He's got Larry Fink of BlackRock on the board. He's got the head of Nestle, the head of Carlyle. He's got companies on his board with trillions of dollars in holdings and, and assets under management. So when he says he's going to change world policy about energy, or change world policy about food, get off of oil and gas, get off of meat, get onto bugs, that China is the future and America is the sunset. He's not just a madman. He's a madman with enormous influence. Andrew, I think that Klaus Schwab, because he's been in that position for decades, probably has more influence than any other person in the world. The American president has more power the head of the United Nations probably knows more heads of state, but he'll be replaced in a few years and the president will die or be unelected. And, and both of those people come here. They come to Klaus Schwab's exactly. table. And, and he knows 
every oligarch. He knows every world leader. He knows the money people. And he has spent 40 years building a legion of what he calls young leaders. Jacinda Ardern, look at her, the, the PM of New Zealand. Emmanuel Macron, look at him, the president of France. Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland. So it's such an extraordinarily powerful group of people who seek to rule the world. That's what they say they want to do. Surely they deserve some scrutiny and accountability. But if you do that, the regime media kicks into, into place and said, you're a conspiracy theorist. That needs a fact check. Well, we're here to fact check it. Just briefly on the media side, one thing that's noteworthy when you look around here is that there are a lot of media companies here from all around the world, but it's the companies that are here pouring a lot of money, not into sending teams of journalists here to report on them, but to basically advertise themselves to it. You've got the Wall Street Journal handing out copies of its newspaper every few meters on the sidewalk. You've got uh, this big Mountain View lookout for the Wall Street Journal. You've got New York Times journalists, CNBC. They're all here to do business with these elites, not to report on them. Here's an example, I'm looking at the CNBC building there. CNBC is owned by Comcast, one of the largest media companies in the world, market cap over $100 billion. They are an official member of the World uh, Economic Forum. So are some of their journalists. So they are not here to speak truth to power. They're here to harmonize with power, to get the next narrative down, Pat, to, to really get marching orders. What's their progressive globalist messaging narrative agenda. How do they talk about the war in Ukraine? How do they talk about the pandemic and vaccines? How do they talk about global warming? They are here to sync up, to synchronize with power, not to speak truth to power, but to speak propaganda for power. I'll let you get back to it, Ezra. Always a pleasure, sir. Good to see you too. Thanks, my friend. Keep it up. That was the uh, great Ezra Levant. Now, funnily enough, as the uh, clip was playing, I just saw like briefly on my Twitter feed in front of me, a clip that Ezra posted of him being weirdly confronted by, I don't know if you know him, there's this YouTuber feel-good Facebook guy named Naz Daily who like has, I don't know, a bajillion followers on uh, Facebook or YouTube and he makes a, a bunch of money and he has this little headquarters in, I believe it's in Dubai, somewhere in the United Arab Emirates. And he does these videos where he, I think they're like a minute long and he showcases something. And it was just that like feel good, clickbaity Facebook content. Anyway, he's like a total WEF fanboy. They love him. He loves them. And he like went up to Ezra and was like starting to heckle him about whatever. And then tried to like whip up a bunch of other journalists to heckle him. And I just, I, Ezra told me about this after it happened. And I, I just saw the clip and it was like very, very weird. So uh, maybe something you want to check out if you are uh, looking for some cringeworthy Streets of Davos content. But anyway, all of that is to say that independent media were the real victors here because they not only push back against the prevailing narrative that we see from the WEF and from governments like that of Canada, but also the idea of independent media really being there and, and penetrating a space. Uh, I mean, we don't penetrate the cabinets, but we penetrate the streets of Davos and doing so by talking to people that are not used to being asked questions. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to do like the mainstream media thing and give myself a gold star and a pat on the back for doing what is my job. But I will tell you, it was very cold, not convoy cold, but very cold. And also, you can't prepare for an interview that you don't know will exist. 
And this was the most fun part of it, actually, because I had a list going in of people I wanted to talk to. I said I wanted to talk to Christian Freeland. I wanted to talk to John Kerry. I wanted to talk to Daryl White of BMO. And unfortunately, he looks like every other banker. So it was very difficult to find Daryl White of BMO. And I had a couple of others that were on my list of it would be nice to talk to if, but you never know who you're going to see until you see them. So what ends up happening is you look at a person and you're like, uh, is that who I think it is? Or, or you look at a name tag and say, that name sounds familiar. Then you quickly Google it. And by the time your phone loads up who it is, they're already like a block away. Uh, so you have very little time to prepare. You've just got to go for it and be a little bit fearless. And if you have some existing thoughts on a subject like I did on Ofcom, you can put them to the head of Ofcom. There are some people that walk by where the feeling is, you know, I should probably talk to this person, but I don't know what to talk to them about. So I'll just say, Say something. And I had that happen with a couple of people. One of them was the Prime Minister of Kurdistan. Now, I know a little bit about Kurdistan. I don't consider myself an expert. And I certainly didn't have enough uh, facts at the ready to do a, a proper interview with the Prime Minister of Kurdistan, Mazrur Barzani. But I wanted to ask him something. So I picked the most low hanging fruit question I could think of with zero notice. Prime Minister, how would you like to see the West support Kurdistan? Uh, we appreciate all the support that we've been receiving from the West, and we hope that they continue supporting us. <laughs> that, that was like the least constructive, least productive interview you've ever seen in your lives. The question was like the Lisa Simpson asking uh, Mr. Burns, uh, I hear your campaign has the success of a runaway freight train. Uh, why are you so popular? It was like, hey, how can the West support you? And his answer, we appreciate the support of the West. And then he just keeps on walking. So that was one. Uh, I can't say I'm proud of it as a feat of journalism, but it was a, a fun, silly moment nonetheless. And the other one, which I think was a little bit better journalism, and I hope you'll forgive me on this one because my microphone wasn't functioning, so the audio was not great. Again, zero time to repair. But this was the president of Serbia who I ran into oddly like 30 feet away from the prime minister of Kosovo, which if you know much about the history of the Balkans, you know is probably like closer than is usually safe for them to be. But this is President Aleksandr Vucic. Do you think it's fair that uh, Novak Djokovic is still being denied access to some countries because of vaccine requirements? I believe that uh, it's not fair, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I believe that he's going to be very defiant and that he's going to win a struggle and open this year. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, not only does he believe that the vaccine mandates in place in the U.S. and elsewhere are unfair, but also that Novak Djokovic will be defiant and win the Australian Open. Now, uh, this is about as close to sports content as you get on The Andrew Lawton Show. You don't get much more than that. So that if you if you are here for tennis news, that's all you're going to get. Uh, but you know what? Your mileage may vary. If he uh, if, if Novak Djokovic does win the Australian Open, I can say you heard it here first. But I just realized I have no idea when the Australian Open is. For all I know, it could have happened like three days ago, and I still would have had no idea about it. But I think tennis is the, the one with the, the rackets. Anyway. The uh, one point I want to just say here before we wrap things up about Davos is that it was so important for me and I think for a lot of True North viewers that we were there to put forward a critique of what happens there that doesn't delve into conspiracy theory. And I maintain that the WEF, the CBC, all of these folks, they absolutely love 
when people peddle conspiracy theories about the reptilian, you know, lizard people in the Swiss mountains, because it means that they don't actually have to defend against the legitimate criticisms because they can just point to conspiracy theories and say, well, that's obviously untrue and carry on. I mean, remember, I've shared that clip on this show last week when that uh, independent journalist Masako Ganaha walks up to Klaus Schwab and she wants to ask him a question. She's being very, very polite. I met her in Davos, absolutely lovely woman. And Klaus Schwab asks her which media she's from. And she says, independent media. And his first instinct then is to say, no, thank you. He turns around, gets into his car and drives away. Because independent means you are not beholden to them. Independent means you're actually prepared to ask difficult questions. And that is not something they are used to. Now, I would absolutely love to sit down one-on-one with Klaus Schwab and say, let's have it out. Let's talk about the things that matter to you. Let's talk about what you actually want. And when you make a claim like he did in the clip I shared earlier that I just uh, don't persuade them, I just talk to them, I just have a table that I, that I uh, hold here and they sit at it and that's that, uh, to push back, well, what about when you say this? But what about when you say this? But what about when you talk about climate change advocacy? What about when you talk about uh, refining and revising capitalism? What about all of these proclamations in your book? What are they, if not manifestos, to influence politicians? I would love to ask him what the point of his Young Global Leaders program is. Because there's this trick you see in foreign influencing as espionage. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not talking about this in a WEF context. I'm talking about it in general terms. Where you get foreign agents that will pick a politician out when they're early in their career. And they'll follow them along until they get more and more important. And then by that point, the damage has been done. I mean, one great example of this is Eric Swalwell in the United States, who was uh, penetrated by Chinese foreign intelligence. He was a, a nobody. He was a congressman. And before you know it, he's running for president. He's a Democrat uh, presidential candidate for nomination. Uh, this is the kind of thing that happens when you are under the influence of a foreign agent. So uh, there's value If you do want to persuade someone and you do want to influence them to have some mechanism that follows them throughout their career. And again, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about this as being some foreign espionage effort, but the Young Global Leaders Program gets politicians into the World Economic Forum ecosystem when they are young. And also other folks, people that are not politicians that are young global leaders that may in the future become politicians. And all of a sudden they're part of this network and they're part of this community. And you watch this and you watch these people and you say, what's the point of this? if not because they're trying to foster this global network of like-minded people. And that doesn't mean anyone that's ever been in that network thinks the same way. You have some people like Michelle Rempel-Garner who have been very critical of it, uh, same as Andrew Scheer, but you get other people that become very hugely involved in this world. And Christian Freeland, who at one point in her career is writing the book on these out-of-touch global elites, and the next time you see her is somehow hobnobbing with them and avoiding journalists asking the questions that she would have probably asked and tried to ask at a different point in her life. So all of that is to say this is an issue that matters. It's one that is relevant to Canadians. It's one that's relevant to Canada. And I'm very proud of the work that True North did shining a light on this when so few other outlets were. 
I like to end things on a lighter note. So when I mentioned that you never know who you're going to see on the streets of Davos, one guy that I kept running into because he kept just like walking around was the celebrity chef Jose Andres. Now, Jose Andres is a guy who practices what he preaches when there's a disaster in the world. He mobilizes and his group, I think it's called World Kitchen or World Food Kitchen. Uh, they get together and they feed people. They're feeding people in Ukraine. They fed people in other disaster zones. Uh, Jose Andres is a WE invited guest. He was going into the uh, elite group. I saw him palling around with John Kerry. I decided I'd just have a little bit of fun. This was on the, the last day of the conference. He was walking down the street and I thought I would ask him a question that I know all of you wanted to know the answer to. Chef, do you have any good cricket recipes? Uh, cricket? Yeah. Uh, well, Sorry, we're uh, a, yeah. uh, tacos uh, from Mexico and crickets are great. All right. Thank you very much. You, we'll give it a try. You've eaten yourself? I haven't had them yet, but now you've given me the recipe. So thank you. you. <laughs> thank you, chef. <laughs> so if you don't know, the whole backstory on this is that, you know, the WEF has, among other things, pushed the idea of alternative proteins, bug proteins. So crickets are now synonymous with the WEF diet. Although I will say I saw no crickets at my time in Davos. Lots of hot chocolate, even some vegan options, but no crickets. So a big chef's walking by. You've got to ask him if he has any cricket recipes. And he does. He ta starts talking about Mexican cricket tacos, uh, which was great. I love that the handler knew exactly where this was going and tried to intervene. Well, Chef Andres is telling me how excited he is that uh, someone's asking him about cricket tacos in Mexico. The handler was like, no, 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 he's got to go. But the funny thing is like moments later, he walked back the other way. And then moments after that, walked back the initial way. So the handler was not actually trying to get him anywhere. He was just trying to get him away from talking about cricket. So uh, doing the hard-hitting cricket journalism was only true North can. On that note, I want to just say first and foremost, thank you to all of you out there who supported our Davos coverage by watching it, sharing it, listening, reading, and also by financially supporting. This was something we tried to keep as economical as possible. It was just me and a videographer there. We uh, shared a, an Airbnb. We uh, did not uh, fly business class, so I wasn't in the same cabin as Christopher Freeland and the president of BMO and uh, Alan Doyle of the Great Big Sea. Nevertheless, it was important, and if there's an appetite for it, we'll certainly do it again next year. January. Uh, if you want to chip in and support this, please do head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. But I wanted to say thank you. And uh, truly, it was a, an absolute blast. And knowing that I had all the support uh, from people like you sharing what we were putting out there. So I'm actually missing my old uh, Davos studio now. Uh, if I if I were over in Davos, I would have had like a boar's head up on the wall there and a bearskin rug and the weird Alpine Lodge vibe. So I'm back home now. I didn't bring the boar's head with me because, uh, you know, check bags. I never would have seen it. So uh, all that aside, thank you. We will talk to you tomorrow with another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.